You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 229 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm busy, like I'm seriously busy, but I'm also, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. This is, this good. is a step up from fair to middling, but not quite on the level of excited, okay? Just so in case anybody's <laughs> wondering what the alometer looks like on a regular basis, it's a, uh, yeah, we've, got, we've made a step up. I had, I've had a really good week because, you know, obviously the book of answers is, is out on the shelves. I've had a really yes. busy week. I've had some good reviews on that. But I also, um, and this just goes to show you how these things work, I woke up yesterday morning and there was a link in my uh, emails to a review uh, by a kid reviewer um, in the US called Eric. And he's been reviewing books for about four years. Um, he's 15 now, maybe even more. Um, but he, it was kind of his blog that inspired Book Boy to start his book, you know, reviewing blog. Um, and anyway, Eric has reviewed the first three books in the Mapmaker Chronicles series and absolutely just loves them, like has given them the most amazing, oh, wow. every single one of them, the most amazingly glowing review, you know, five oh. bookworms, five out of five bookworms all round and just adoring it and hoping to see another book. And I, it just, it makes me so glad, you know, that Quinn and, and the Mapmaker Chronicles crew are, are, are all, you know, about making new friends and new fans all over the world. And it was a really lovely way to start the day. I was just yes. like, yeah, this is great. So How it's kind awesome. of, um, yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's uh, because, you know, obviously, uh, the, you know, I wrote the first book in the Mapmaker Chronicles. Well, you know, it was published in Australia in 2014. So it's been out there for a little while yeah. now. And um, that it's still finding new new friends is is um you know, is so incredibly satisfying as a writer, I can't tell you. So there's that. That was a good day. That's So I'm still awesome. living the glow of that. Yeah. And then wow. also, just to add to my joy, um, the uh, the builder and I went on a creative date last oh, night. We, really? We took ourselves – we did. We took ourselves to Sydney um, oh. to see First Aid Kit, who are a – uh, you know, singing duo, most beautiful harmonies. And um, we drove up, we went to the Sultan's Table and had ourselves an amazing Lebanese feast, fully recommend it in Enmore there if anybody's not been. Um, and then we went to uh, the Enmore Theatre and we were, you know, grown-ups and we saw a gig and then we drove home again. Wow. That's a – I know. It's a big a bit day, of a hike. It's yes. a massive hike. It's about two hours. It was not too bad at night because, you know, the traffic's not so bad, but but it was really good. And it's the kind of thing that you sort of think, oh, that's just way too hard. Why would I do that? But yes. when you make the effort and you go, it was just terrific. You know, and the Enmore Theatre is such an amazing space. I love it there. I just yeah. love it. It's yeah. kind of fading grandeur, you know, beautiful. Anyway, so that's me. What about you, Val? What have you been up to? 
What have I been up to? Oh, goodness me. So many things. Um, I had a really bizarre thing the other night when I was looking on Instagram and you know how people can tag you, but um, like in the photo, like in they, they yeah. post a photo and you're tagged in the yeah. photo. So, yeah. and I didn't really, because I, I, I went to this person's Instagram profile and I looked at the photo and mm-hmm. I'm tagged in there and I'm like, but I'm not in the photo. <laughs> okay. And I didn't really understand because it was also in another language. And um, uh, so I couldn't make it out from the translation. Um, and the, the, it, the, you, you can press um, see the translation. Yeah. And when you, when I pressed see the translation, it said invest in yourself. And I went, oh, okay. Then I looked because it's a, the image was I wasn't in the image, but there's a pile of books, but all of the books were in another language, <laughs> right? And um, and I didn't see my name, but I think it was because it was cut off. And there was this book, Historias Poderosas, no Poderosas, yeah, Historias Poderosas. And I thought, well, maybe that's my book. <laughs> Right, because I'm I'm wondering why I'm st- still getting these royalty checks, right? And so I Google <laughs> Historias Poderosas, and like, not only is do I have a Goodreads profile in Spanish, <laughs> for, well, for Historias Poderosas and all these people from Spain or from you know um, uh, all the cu- Spanish-speaking countries that is uh, rating it. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I literally have just Googled that and there's about 80 million references to it. I did, you, did you seriously not know that that, that had even happened? Did well, you seriously that, not know? I knew it had been translated but I'd never seen the cover or anything, right? So there's even people on YouTube who are reviewing Historias Poderosas. And I don't understand Spanish, but they're going blah, 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 blah. And then you hear blah, 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 Sydney journalist, blah, 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 Valerie Koo. <laughs> that, is, that is hilarious. Yeah. So you did you not wonder where the royalty checks were coming from? Yeah, I was wondering. And, like, the <laughs> they, there's even a book trailer. Someone made a book trailer. I just didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I, wow, that's amazing. I'm sort of gobsmacked by this, Valerie. You're like, you, I know. you're kind of pretty savvy and that you didn't even know that this had happened. Surely, funny, did your right? publisher not organise for you to receive a copy of the Spanish translation? Nah, I, I knew it was being translated. I did know that. But um, no, I didn't get a copy and I haven't seen the copy. I didn't even know it was called Historias Poderosas. Poderosas, yeah. So it just kind of disappeared into the ether and checks appeared and you were just like, it must be somewhere. Yeah, I'm I'm big in Spain. (laughs) That's so funny. It's funny you talk about that though because I have have Lithuanian editions of of the Mapmaker Chronicles series and there's there's another one on the way because the third book has just come out in Lithuania. So Mm. that's exciting. Um, But it also, I think book one and book two, um, came out in Turkey, and I know that they that it was translated. I know that it's there, but I have never yes. received an author copy, and I have been trying to get hold of an author copy because I just like to have them. 
Yeah. Like the, I love the, you know, the the foreign language editions because, you know, they have the, it's just hilarious. Like I just love to have them. Um, mm. And I've been trying to track one down for years now and um, I'm still waiting and it's it's becoming – I just said to my – to the to the rights um, connection that I have, I just was like, can I buy one? Like is yeah. there somewhere that I can actually <laughs> buy? I just want to have one in my collection. Yeah. But, see, I'm all over it and you're like, yeah, there's a book out there somewhere. It's, it's it's that the the bit that was most surprising to me was like you know p- watching people on YouTube do a book review on it. <laughs> so, That's so funny. Yeah, you'd be in Spain. Go you. Yeah, funny. Anyway, so there you go. That's what I've been doing. Um, but we want to give <clears throat> a big shout out to Abstract Serenity. Now, Abstract Serenity has left us a review on iTunes and called it, now very creative, a burger delight during a break-in diet. (laughs) So Abstract Serenity has said, take the title with a grain of salt. It's a reference to the delight one feels when they come across something flavoursome yet hearty, which describes this podcast to a T. Various episodes tucker into the meat of what it means to be a writer and the various environments we can be found, all while Val and Al engage enthusiastically with the content and each other. Facing a dull plot and unsure of where you might be going wrong, seeking to break into the fiction or non-fiction market and unsure of the realities of doing so, look no further. There's an episode here on any question an aspiring writer could think of. So if you're needing an intellectual pick-me-up on the commute or drive to work, this podcast is right up your alley. I encourage anyone with even a modicum of interest in writing to listen. No doubt you will find a hidden nugget of wisdom. Yay! Thanks so much. I've always wanted to be a burger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Al Al and Val Burger, there's something kind of mm, hashtag. That'd be good. I wonder if someone would make one. Like apparently Ben and Jerry's have a Jimmy Fallon ice cream. Oh, what does it taste like? Mm, What would be on an Al and Val Burger? Like let's just take a moment. To think about that. Well, I Given guess there won't be the bananas. Thing, oh, God, no. There mm. will be no bananas. Mm. You can't put chocolate on a burger or anything. It can't be sweet. Like it's got to no. be a savoury burger. Yes, that's true. Mm. Um, I'd be I interested might... to know what people think should go on a Valinal <laughs> burger. If you would like yeah. to share your thoughts on that in the podcast community on Facebook, then please do so. Yeah, we'd love to hear. Now, sum if us you're, up in a burger. Sum us up in a burger. It's hashtag Val and Al Burger. So uh, if you're not in the podcast community uh, on Facebook, then come and join us. It's a great party. All you need to do is search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join the group. It's an awesome group. We love all the people in it and it's just a fantastic place to chat about writing and just share our wins and ask questions and all sorts of stuff. So make sure you join us. Now let's move on. And thank you very much to Abstract Serenity for the highly entertaining review. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It really, really makes our day. And if anyone else feels like leaving us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful and it makes us smile and often laugh. Uh, Again, it really helps us in the rankings, so that would be great. Now let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week. So one of our listeners, Bambi, sent me this 
<laughs> this video, which was uh, actually originally found on the BBC Facebook page. And I absolutely love it because it's um, it's this cool video about uh, Grandma. Um, uh, he's, he, he's called the Banksy of punctuation and he is a grammar vigilante in Bristol in the UK and what he does there's a video of him at night with a very special apostrophe adder it's a long thing on a stick where he can paint apostrophes or remove apostrophes from places that they shouldn't be so watch the video because he goes around in the middle of the night with a hoodie and if there are extra apostrophes that don't need to be there, he covers them up with tape. Very clever. And if apostrophes need to be added, he will add them in. However, usually people are a bit excessive with their apostrophes and most of the time there's too many apostrophes rather than too few. So we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's a cool video of uh, this grammar vigilante in the UK. Check it out. I'm a ninja. You could be one of those. I I can see you in a hoodie out there. Do you know, when I was about 18 or 19 and I was just, I must have been 19 because I'd started my um, journalism cadetship and Mm. I was chatting to the editor-in-chief one day, as you do, about, you know, not much in general. And um, I remember saying to him that I'd had this great business idea and uh, my business idea, you know, at 19, was Mm. that I was going to, I was going to set up a service for sign writers and mm. I was going to proofread signs before they went before they put them up there. So <laughs> you know they would send the they would send the copy to me. I would proofread the sign. I would make sure it was all correct, and then they could go and put it up so that there could there would be no random apostrophes and there would be no random you know misspellings and all of that sort of stuff. And um, he thought it was hilarious that I would even think that this because oh, clearly I was born forty eight because you know of, that I was concerned <laughs> about this at nineteen amused him no end. But then we Absolutely. got into the nitty. We got into the nitty-gritty of whether or not sign writers cared enough to actually hire someone oh, to proofread. We got it. Yeah. I ran into some problems when I started to consider how I was going to monetize, although monetize was not a word back then, no. but how I was going to actually make some cash out of this particular service that I was quite sure was going to take over the world. And so mm. I became a sub-editor instead so that I could just manage apostrophes, you know, <laughs> within – Printed publications, but don't you think? Like, I mean, seriously, there's a mm. there's a need for it, isn't oh, there? Like, it's a gap. Absolutely. There's a gap in that market, but whether yeah. or not anyone actually paid to do it, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, you know, it, restaurant menus should also be in that category because there are constant errors in restaurant menus. I find as well. Or well, do you want to do do you want to do that section of our business and, and I'll manage the signs? Okay, All right, so that's, you can that's do good the news and I'll manage the signs. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I feel like it's going to be like it's a winner. We're going to make millions, right? Millions, absolute millions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're deluded. Okay. Yeah. So um, the next link actually comes from um, uh, the Writers Cooperative. Oh, and I've lo- managed to lose the link. From writingcooperative.com. And this Do you want person. Me to take over here or not? Uh, yes, take over. 
No, only from the perspective of have you found the link? I have found the link. Or do I need yes. to step in and make polite conversation <laughs> until you actually manage to get it back up again? Oh, it's from the Writing Cooperative and it's called What I've Learned After Consistently follow, Following the Rule of Three for a Month. So this is a writer and you may ask, well, what is the rule of three? Well, it's sort of um, – uh, stemmed from something that this writer, uh, who is my fam, wrote. Um, and she cites something that the writer Brian Clark wrote um, in his advice on 10 steps to become a better writer. So I just want to mention that first before we get on to the rule of three because I think it mm-hmm. was very clever. So Brian Clark says, number one, so this is 10 steps to become a better writer. Number one, write. Number two, write more. Number three, write even more. Number four, write even more after that. Number five, write when you don't want to. Six, write when you do. Seven, write when you have something to say. Eight, write when you don't. Nine, write every day. Ten, keep writing. (laughs) Which I think was so true. She kind of liked that but she decided to do something a little bit different and she set herself a 30-day challenge to actually do these three things every day. I'm not necessarily saying you should do or uh, all writers should do these three things, but I like the fact that three things are achievable yes. and and they're achievable achievable if you only set yourself a 30, 30 days to do them, you know what I mean, because you know it's gonna, not going to last forever. So her three things were, number one, write at least a 1,000 words a day. Now that may or may not suit you. You may only want to do 250 words, whatever, but give yourself some kind of word count. Number two, I will answer one question on Quora every day. That might not be as relevant to everyone, but she obviously wanted to be on Quora for some reason. But number three, Mm -hmm. I will publish one post on my Facebook every day. And I think that that's really good, especially for people who are trying to build their author platform. And, you know, they publish like once a week. Like I met an author Mm -hmm. the other day who said, oh, my God, it just takes so much time, I mean, oh, to publish once a week. And I just thought, oh, my God, you're never going to build a, uh, a following by posting It takes once so much time. I know. Yeah. I couldn't understand <laughs> the statement. <laughs> is, is that particular author blogging on Facebook? Like is it she writing a 500-word no. post? It was like, it's like two lines. You know, okay. what creative things are you doing today? She's obviously read some kind of strange advice that um, that says it's okay to post once a week on your Facebook page, but it's just silly. Mm. Mm. Uh, but, you know, obviously this particular author is looking to build her author platform and she knows that that's something that she needs to do. So she's got her li- little list of three things and she did that Um uh, for, for 30 days and ended up with, uh, you know, all, heaps of words and mm. um, an active Facebook page. I'm not entirely mm. sure what happened with Quora. So there you go. Mm. It's good, isn't it? Well, Just I have, personally get into a think habit. that, well, I'm interested in the fact of what she learned from doing it because I think those three things are great in the sense of those are not necessarily the three things I would do. No. But choosing three things that you can do and that will be yes. – um, a benefit to you um, is a great way to go about it because you know while while um, Brian Clark's you know become a better writer is amusing. It's also just really like that's not helpful. I'm sorry, but you know write 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 <laughs> is not actually 
it's because it's it's that whole thing we always talk about about having that sort of manageable task to reach a goal because a goal is one thing and a dream is something else but a manageable task is something that you can actually tick I'm all about something you can tick off I'm all about mm. crossing it off my to-do list and feeling like I've achieved something. And I think oh, that if you too. choose the right three things for you, you know, the three things that you choose will help you to achieve an enormous amount. Like if you, you know, one one post Facebook post a day is really not that tiresome. No. So she posts three times a day, depending on the day. Um, mm-hmm. But I should probably like put in a bit of an edit between my brain and my fingertips sometimes because I'm just like, you know, I'm hanging out my washing and do you hang your <laughs> socks inside out? <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, those kind of posts, I get so much engagement out of those things. People talk to me. If I put up, you know, like I need a washing powder for my, that works well in cold water, 8,000 comments later, mm. <laughs> I'm just mm. sitting there going, Really? All of you people mm. know this and I don't. But anyway. I know. But I, I want to – Interesting. Uh, Sorry. No, you, you go, go on. You go on. No, you, I want to know what you want to do. <laughs> no, I just – I wanted to post something on Facebook the other day because no one was home. I had to make dinner. There was nothing around. And I thought, okay, there's some brown rice. <laughs> oh, dear. And then I took it out and I went to the stove and I went, hmm. I don't know how to cook rice. And then I thought, maybe I'll ask Facebook. Then I thought, people are not going to respond well to that and not going to believe me. I know, but it would be funny. It would be so funny. It's really, I was talking about you to someone the other day. Your ears were probably burning and we were, Mm. you know, waxing lyrical about how amazing you are. And um, this person said to me, like, seriously, is there anything that woman can't do? And I went, she can't cook. Just straight away, just yeah. right there. And I'm pretty sure that every single person who listens to this podcast would have exactly the same answer as having listened yeah. to our conversation. She can't cook. But, yeah, so, you know, it made, that, it made that person feel better. And people, you know, just while we're on that, people would say to me, Al, what is the benefit mm-hmm. of 800 comments about washing powder, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I would say this to you because, you know, okay, it's not about my writing and it's not about my books and it's not about whatever. What it's about is talking to my community and my mm. community talking back to me. Yes. It's about that engagement that you get that the Facebook algorithm says people like to talk to her, we yeah. can show them more of her stuff, which is important. Mm. And it's about the fact that you just never, ever know, you never know with Facebook what it is that people are going to really respond to. And that mm. engagement you know, when you get that kind of engagement around a conversation around about anything, and honestly, some of the ones that have gone ridiculously off on my Facebook page in the last couple of weeks have just been hilarious. You never mm. know what it's going to be, but it really extends your reach on Facebook, yes. your organic reach every single time. So mm. while you might be thinking to yourself, Al's gone nuts, she's talking about, you know, washing powder. Mm-hmm. Um, I have gone nuts because this is genuinely me. This is me going, oh, yeah. my God, you know. Aren't getting washed, and people respond to that because you know they're part of my team, and I'm looking to my team for support here. I want to know how do mm. I do this, and they want to tell me. And I, you know, that's that you you can't buy it is what I what I want to say. Yes, you can't absolutely. buy that sort of relationship and that connection with people you know in your online community. So you know that's why it's so important that every single thing you put on your Facebook page is not you banging on about you. Yes. Really important because people want to feel part of what you're doing and so you Mm. need to invite them in. 
And that's that's the kind of – it's those off-the-cuff um, – Oh, I think I had another one where I t- talked about the fact that I'd asked Book Boy to go and get in the shower, which mm. apparently translated in teen speak into go and drum in the garage. Like literally, <laughs> I said to him, go and get in the shower. He said, yes, mum. Five minutes later, I hear this almighty, you know, very rhythmic racket from the garage. I'm like, what? <laughs> like what just happened? How did we get here? And, you know, I put that up and, of course, that went nuts because anyone who's got a teenager in their house will know that it's that sort of like some kind of massive disconnect between and in five minutes the whole world can change, you know. It's a really interesting thing. So, again, it's just that kind of connection that you have with people. Yeah, it's so important. And of course, if you want to build your author platform, make sure you check out Alison's awesome course, which gives you a blueprint on how to do exactly that. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash platform, and you'll see the exact steps you need to take in order to build your author platform to make sure that you have as much support and and and, and as much as many fans as, as you can, even before your book comes out. But mm-hmm. let's, this is a perfect time to then talk about Alison's new course, which we've kind <gasps> of been dropping yes. a few hints um, that Alison has been working on a new course for us at the Australian Writer Centre. And I am so, so, so excited about it. It's going to be huge because for the first time ever, it's going to be a course for, you want to take over, Al? No, Val, because you're doing such a great job. I want you to keep going because I like (laughs) that guy smiley tone that you have to your voice right now. Go on, do it. I'm super, super, super excited and I'm really, really passionate about this because this is going to be the first kids course, as in a course for children aged somewhere between 9 and 14. It just depends on where your child is at. It's going to um, be relevant for all all kids at that age because um, the same principles are going to apply in how you creatively write and how you tell stories. And I'm a big believer that a really good foundation in writing starts in childhood. I think you, I think Alison and I were both very lucky that we had uh, that kind of foundation and that's why we love Mm. writing today and that's why we love communicating and telling stories today. And Mm. while our our schools are doing a great job at at, uh, fostering that kind of creativity, all of that effort can certainly be enriched with a course that's designed especially for children who either love to write or who where or in situations where you want to foster their creativity and help them in their own storytelling skills and help them just love it and be passionate about it and it's all going to be led by Alison herself by so me do you want to tell us what's in the course Al I think this is so cool because at the end of the course as well your child will get feedback directly from Alison via Directly. Yes. Directly from me. But tell us what's in the course, Al. Well, the course covers a whole range of different things. It's it's about encouraging kids to write in a fun and informative way. So I'm looking at, I mean, you know what my philosophy is. You listen to me talking all the time here. It's about being useful. 
It's about offering quality information, but it's also about inspiration. Like I'm really keen to make this a really positive experience for kids who love to write or for kids who just want to learn to write better because, you know, there's that too. Sometimes, you know, the the classroom environment doesn't necessarily work for all kids and sometimes they just need a little bit more encouragement, kind of like one-on-one, and that's what the videos will will offer them. So we're going to cover um, everything. It's it's, It's split into 12 modules, which are short because, you know, we don't, I don't want this to feel like school. This is not me banging on at them for an hour about stuff. This is short modules packed with information and then a task, a short task for them to do each week. Um, It will build on itself and by the time they get to the end of the course, they will have um, a fully, a full a story of up to 800 words, but polished, a polished story that they've thought about, that's structured, that they've edited. Um, We're going to look at how to find ideas for stories. Um, I'm going to offer writing prompts that they can use that they can go back to over and over again. There are creative challenges. We're looking at the essential ingredients for every story. We're looking at characters, worlds. We're looking at the basics of story structure. We're looking at the best ways to start and finish a story because I often find with kids this kind of age that they will enthusiastically dive into a story and they will never get to the end of it because they just keep writing and writing and they lose the plot and then they walk away. Um, we're going to look at some some more sophisticated writing techniques like um, subplots, you know, the, the basics of dialogue and how you use that to impart information. And we look at the basics of editing a story. Um, and then, of course, you know, they'll get you know, generally just me talking um, enthusiastically about writing every time they sort of have a look at a module. So um, I think it's really exciting. Um, We've done a lot of work on this and uh, and the whole Australian Writers' Centre team has done a whole lot of work Mm -hmm. on this, on making this a storytelling adventure that kids will be really keen to, you know, come to each time a new module is there for them um, and sort of engage with it and really sort of get the most out of it. Because I want them I want them to do the course and I want them to do their one story and all of those sorts of things and the exercises. But what I really, really want is for them to be so excited about writing that they just keep doing it. That's, I mean, that's where we're, that's what we're trying to do here is just to encourage kids to write. And it's, you know, it's not just kids who love writing, although of course those are probably going to be the ones banging on our door first, but kids who, who maybe, you know, don't find it as easy. And and maybe this is the thing that's going to unlock the writing for them as well. So that's the key to the whole thing, which is very exciting. It is. It's very exciting. It's so cool. And you can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash kids. And it's called Your Creative Quest. And it's for kids aimed at around 9 to 14. So have a look and see whether it's um, uh, it's appealing to your child. And as Alison said, every week or every module, there is a new story challenge. That's a task or that's a creative challenge that we set for the participants, the students, the kids and they go off and do that creative um, do that uh, creative challenge and they submit their um, what they write or, or their ideas and um, at the at the end of the 12 weeks they will have through that creative challenge process they will have created their 800 word story which Alison mm-hmm. will read and provide feedback on so writercenter.com.au slash kids. All right. Let's move on to... So much excitement. So much excitement. Furious Fiction April kicks off on Friday the 6th of April. And 
Yes, very exciting. Who will be the lucky winner of $500 this month? So $500 cash. If you're not already part of the Furious Fiction Fan Club, <laughs> make sure you go to writercenter.com.au slash fury and you'll be notified each time a new competition opens and each time that you have a chance to win $500 cash by writing 500 words or fewer based on that particular month's theme. And if you're not familiar with Furious Fiction, it's on the first Friday of every month and it starts at 5pm, which is when you'll be emailed the theme. And then you have 55 hours in which to complete it. You can complete it in a lot less if you want. Um, and and you submit your story by the, by the Sunday night and uh, the winner receives $500. Very exciting. But so many the- Fs. So many Fs. It's all quite a bit difficult to say, actually. Yeah, really. Wow. I'm impressed. But something is also super, super exciting. We have, in our competition this week, three copies of Alison's new book, The Book of Answers, (gasps) by the amazing Alison Tate, otherwise known as A.L. Tate. And it's extra special because each book is signed by Al. So in the second gripping Adam and Cypher novel, Gabe and his companions journey to a remote mountain citadel where they learn the secret of the mysterious encrypted book that Gabe has been tasked with protecting. But their enemies are close behind them and new dangers lie ahead. So make sure you enter. Entries close on the 9th of April. Go to writercenter.com.au slash win. And now, after all that, are we ready for the word of the week, Al? <laughs> I think I need to lie down after I all that. So like, that was an enormous amount of stuff there. But, yes, I will lie down and I will listen to the word of the week. Okay, so the word of the week is proscribe, as in P-R-O-scribe, proscribe, not prescribe, you know, which is a word we're all familiar with, but proscribe means to denounce or condemn something or someone as dangerous or illegal. So you might say the names of some terrorists have been proscribed in certain countries. There we go. Prescribe, did you know that word? It's very close to prescribed, I mean, in the sense of even listening to it. So you can see how people could get a little confused. Yes, yes. But um, did you know that word? No. Me either. Yeah, prescribe. So there you go. go. Use prescribe in a sentence. So who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Oh, I've got the most fascinating conversation to share with you all this week. Um, I had a chat to Danielle Claude, who is um, an award-winning author of nonfiction, including narrative nonfiction, literary nonfiction, children's nonfiction, science writing, essays, all of the above. Um, a really, really interesting conversation about sort of how she went from a doctorate of zoology to becoming um, an award-winning, you know, author and uh, very, very involved in the, in the writing process and. Um, She's a really interesting, um, a really interesting interview because the, her book, The Wasp and the Orchid, is about the remarkable life of Australian naturalist Edith Coleman, and it's a beautiful hardcover um, book. It's just gorgeous. Um, but you know, it's that whole notion of, well, how did you come up with that, Danielle? How, where do you find that story, and then what do you do with it? Um, and we discuss a whole lot of stuff about managing research. So I hope you guys really enjoy this.
Danielle Cloyd is an award-winning Australian non-fiction author. Her writing includes natural history, essays, science writing, historical fiction and best-selling children's books. Her books have won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for non-fiction, Whitley Award for Popular Zoology and been shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia Awards. Her latest book, The Wasp and the Orchid, is a biography of the remarkable naturalist and nature writer Edith Coleman and is out now with Picador. Welcome to our program, Danielle. Thank you. Pleased to be here. All right. So we're going to go back to the beginning a little bit here. You studied psychology and politics at Adelaide University before completing a doctorate in zoology at Oxford University. And yet here you are, accomplished author of literary nonfiction books where did this all begin? Like, how did your first book come to be published? Well, I think I probably started my writing career actually when I was studying zoology because I was really interested in science writing and, and I realised when I finished my degree that I was actually a better writer than I was a field worker. Um, pretty much it started from there. Okay, so what, so what was your first book and what, what, you know, what, did, what did you decide I mean how did you decide that was going to be your first book well I probably I started out writing short pieces for science magazines and things like that and writing book chapters um and various other things but I very quite early on I was really lucky to get a job at Museum Victoria and the job was as an essayist so it was writing essays about their collections which is pretty much a a dream job for a writer in a way Mm. Um, and that ended up turning into um, my first book, or not my first published book, but the first book that I wrote, which was Continents of Curiosity. Okay, so do you think that that strong CV in essay writing helped when it came to having to produce a longer work? Like, was there anything that, like, what was your first longer work um, of nonfiction? Well, Continent of Curiosities is actually, um, is a collection of essays, so really I, I just put a whole heap of them together. Yeah. Um, so that was that was a, one way of, of dealing with that issue of getting to a longer work. Um, but Killers in Eden was actually my first published book, um, and that came about through talking to a publisher about interesting stories in natural history, and and he'd been to the Eden Killer Whale Museum and thought it was a fantastic story, and I happened to have been there too, and um, actually had had a long-standing fascination with that story. So it was just a shared interest with the publisher. Okay, and was there anything about that process that surprised you in the sense of getting that story down and working out what needed to go in and what you needed to leave out and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think that, I, you know, obviously I first started out as a science writer, so my focus was more on on the content and on telling the story, um, you know, the, the background information, the specialist information that other people might not have access to, making it making it accessible to the general public because, mm. you know, I have to read a lot of scientific papers which are incredibly complicated to read and difficult to extract anything interesting out of them. Um, but as I went on, I became more and more interested in the actual writing process and, and, and just writing really for its own sake, if you like, just, just also still for the information but also for the beauty of the writing. Okay, so with the kind of work that you do, um, I guess, you know, the information is always going to be the starting point for you, isn't there? Like sort of you, you've, you've got to start with the facts, you've got to start with what's known and then you've got to work out how you're going to create 
a, as you say, an accessibility to those facts for for your general reader. Would you agree that that's the case? Like, is the starting point always going to be the information? It's it sort of is. I guess it's becoming a little bit less so for me as I go on. Um, you know, because science writing is often very dry um, and it's very factual and straightforward. It might be simple to understand, but it's not always the most exciting. Um, writing to read so if we think about science journalism you know in science magazines and things like that um, it, it can be you know very straightforward and clear but not necessarily beautiful mm. and I, th- I think that to get people to really and I think people who are interested in science already that's a great form for them but for people who perhaps aren't interested in these things so much to, to attract that audience you really need to produce something that's a little bit extra so you you need to emotionally engage the audience and I think you do that through the writing itself. And is that something that you've learned as you've gone along? Is that is that sort of like process of emotional engagement something that you've um, obviously, I mean, you're obviously great at it because you've, you've won a heap of awards and things like that or do you think that that's just a natural part of your own writing process is putting that stuff in? I think, I, I mean, I hope I have got better. I hope I am you know continue to get better as well. Mm. I think it's the process of improvement with writing and learning new skills and and yeah I, I think that probably learning how to use different narrative techniques um, and especially devices that are usually more commonly used in fiction um, mm. but can be applied to non-fiction um, all those sorts of things can really increase the engagement with the audience. Okay, so let's talk about The Wasp and the Orchid, which is your latest and most beautiful book. Like I have the hardcover edition here on my desk and it is just, you know, gorgeous, just as an object, you know, if nothing else. Um, and it's the biography of the nature writer Edith Coleman. Tell me how you came to write this particular story. Like, How did you decide that Edith was a book? Well, I, it took me a long time to decide that Edith was a book. She was always an uh, a something that I was quite fascinated by. Um, I came across the story of Edith Coleman when I was working in the museum um, and it was one of the many, many, many stories that popped up um, during that that time when I was working there. But it wasn't something that I could really do anything with at the time. I, she didn't, that story didn't end up in Continent of Curiosities. Um, so she was just in, a, in, a, in my filing cabinet um, as a potential thing to come back to. Um, and it wasn't until... Recently, it's about five years ago or so, that I returned to that project um, because I I was looking for funding opportunities and the Australian Orchid Foundation had a, a call for grants, for small ah. grants. And I thought, oh, what could I do with orchids? And then I thought, I know, I could do something with Edith Coleman. So I put in a proposal to search for all of her popular publications because I knew most of her scientific publications, they're all data-based and accessible. Scientists are very good at keeping track of publications. But her popular articles in the newspapers and magazines weren't really known. I had a partial list, but I knew there were more out there. So I used that that money to search for for all her other articles and pull them all together. And And I had a vague idea of publishing a sort of an anthology of her writing, so so really a book by her, um, but it, it turned into something else. So let's just go back a little bit there at that process. How did you go about tracking down all of those articles? Well, it couldn't have been done without um, – oh, excuse me, I've got a fog in my throat. 
um, it couldn't have been done without Trove, the um, newspaper digitization process at the National Library, because it's it's just physically impossible to manually search through all the newspapers in Australia to find her articles. But because Trove has digitized them and they're now machine readable, you can search for them. Um, so that made the whole process a lot easier. There were still quite a few I had to track down by hand. Um, so I knew she had published in, you know, somebody mentioned she'd published in Your Garden magazine. So I was able to go to the library and search the early records of Your Garden magazine to find those articles. And the same for the Australian Women's um, Mirror as well. So, Okay, so once you had all of those articles and obviously you've got all of her science stuff, which is neatly databased for us, what um, what did you do then? What How did you then come from that to, I'm going to put an anthology together, to creating this, you know, this biography, this very lyrical, really, biography of her life and work? Well, I, I did actually submit uh, the proposal for an anthology to a few different um, academic publishers and they weren't interested. They said, oh, no, that won't be of general interest. We won't be able to sell enough copies. Um, so... <laughs> I was actually having a little bit of a complaint um, on Facebook, as as you do, um, and the publisher. Yes, that's right. Just a, just a gentle one, um, and the publisher from Picador um, actually noticed because um, and said, "Send it to me. I'm really interested." And I and I said, "No, no, it's not really your thing. Uh, you're not really interested in this." But but he insisted that I send it to him and. And he actually completely re-envisaged the project and said, look, this is the kind of way you need to approach this. Do it differently. Um, do something quite creative and imaginative with it. Do a bit of nature writing, a bit of science writing, a bit of biography, um, and see what you come up with. And and that's how it turned into the proposal that went to Picador and they accepted it. Fantastic. So, so more of a – I mean, it just goes to show you, doesn't it, as a writer, sometimes you just do need that – um, slightly different editor approach to get the to get the concept right. You do. I do actually find. I think that's one of the great benefits of working in nonfiction is that you do get to discuss your ideas with um, an editor and publisher before you actually start writing the book. So mm. I've, I've always found that really helpful because because they often have really good ideas on on how books can work and what will appeal to you know the market and all those sorts of things. So. It's, it's a really nice process to be able to do that, discuss the proposal, flesh out the ideas, get the shape of the book um, a bit clearer mm. um, before you actually start embarking on the, the work itself. Okay, so once you decided that you were going to focus, you know, not just on her writing but also on her life, that brings in a whole new dimension, doesn't it? Because then you're looking at history and then you're looking at family and then you're looking at relatives still, you know, around and all of that sort of stuff. What was your next step as far as pulling the book together? Did you need to approach her family or did you just, you know, start to find what had been written about it before or how did you go about the next step? Yeah, well, there isn't actually much written about her before. There's a biography in the Australian Dictionary of Biography, and that's about it. Mm. Um, so I have written a paper on her before, but, but there's nothing else much out there, just an occasional mention in a book here and there. Um, and as for tracking down her family, it was a matter of finding them first because um, I, I didn't know who her family were. Um, I, I realised, and of course she had um, two daughters, and daughters are problematic because they tend to change their names. They do. <laughs> so, They're very problematic, those daughters. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so so that was tricky. And I knew that one of them who hadn't changed her name, Dorothy, um, hadn't had any children. So it was the other daughter. And I was I was kind of relieved when I finally came across in an archive that um, Edith's other daughter, Gladys, had married Donald Thompson, the anthropologist, because Donald Thompson is quite a well-known figure. There's quite a lot of archival material about him. Mm. So that, that that gave me some way of finding um, his wife and and his sons as well. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, but, but even then I had problems because his name's Thompson and Thompson is a really common name. Yeah. <laughs> so trying to trace down um, the, the grandsons was quite tricky, but I was fortunate that they followed in their grandparents' footsteps and had become academics themselves. Um, and John in particular had become a biologist and so I actually... And he'd been at Melbourne University and because I had been working at Melbourne University in the zoology department, some of the people there knew him and remembered him and I was able to track him down. Fantastic. You must have felt like Sherlock Holmes once you kind of, you know, found them and got to them and had, you know, were able to talk to them and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the research is marvellous when it actually pays off and you work it out. Fantastic. So I imagine you must have had, by the time you've done all this and you've done some family history work and you've got all the articles and you've got all the various things, you you must have had an absolute mountain of research to wade through. Like when you're writing a book like this, how do you manage your research? Yeah, well, I mean, there was quite a lot of research, although I have to say in Edith's case, it's not a lot compared to what other people might have. You know, Mm. you sometimes read biographies and they've got you know mountains and mountains of archival material that you know they've they've given all their personal records to a library or something and the library's got boxes and boxes full of material well Edith didn't do that she didn't leave her material to an archive so there so there isn't a lot it's very fragmentary Mm. and and so had a strong influence on how I wrote the book because there are whole sections of her life that I really don't have any information on um, and it, so you can't tell a complete story of her life because we simply don't have all the material. For example, when I know she used to write up to 20 letters a day. Um, wow, really? In her life, an enormous number of letters. So she was incredibly prolific. And yet I only found about 30. Oh, wow. So you know that there's this missing, um, you know, resource that, that you just don't don't know what's in it. So, so it's sort of puts a completely different slant on how you write the biography because what you're writing is always going to be incomplete. That's an interesting concept too because I guess, you know, there's that notion of you as a writer knowing that there's stuff missing. Like do you, do you have that urge to just keep looking, keep looking, keep looking until you find it or do you, you know, at what point do you go, I need to draw the line in the sand here? Is it because you've got a deadline or is it because you know that that's, it's a dead end basically? In some cases, you just decide it's it's you know it's not going to pan out, or it's just too difficult to find the material. You know, you, you sometimes you have to travel to go on to go and check the resources yourself. Um, and a lot of it's serendipity, though, with research. You know, it's it, it's what falls into your path that gets used. And obviously, you're looking for it as well. But sometimes, just things turn up that you weren't expecting. Mm. Um, and I guess. So, so yeah, it's a it's a bit of a mix, really. Um, between there, there is the issue of the deadline. Of course, deadlines do make it make it. <laughs> that's that's an absolute. You have to meet your deadline, so 
that makes you stop. Yeah. Or you, you often find yourself repeating, you're just finding more of the same. You're not coming up with new stuff. Right. Okay. So you, that, I think that's always a sign that you've probably exhausted the material that's out there. Okay. Did you, um, do you, as a kind of a, obviously an incredibly, you know, practiced and skilled researcher as well as a writer, do you try to get all your research material together before you start or are you just writing bits and pieces as you go? Predominantly, in this, for this particular project, I did get most of my raw material together before I started, but I was still discovering new things along the way as well. And I always find that there are little pockets that I realise I need to go and do more work on um, as I'm writing, and so those ones I'll fill in. Um, so, so it's a bit of a bit of both. Okay. So there are very comprehensive end notes at the end of this book that you know kind of made my head spin a little bit as a non-academic person. But does your background make that sort of very careful annotation easier, or do you find it kind of painstaking work as well? Uh, referencing is always a pain. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, it, it's certainly um, it's a it's a natural thing for me to do, I suppose, coming from that academic background. Mm. And I find, I mean, as often, I, I mean, I often try and reference, even if I take them out of the final copy, I'll, I'll I'll do that for my own record so that I can go back and trace a source. You know, if you've got a quote or something and you don't know, you can't remember where you got it from, and those sorts, of, that's a bigger pain than mm. actually referencing carefully as you go. I guess for this particular one, because I wanted to be very clear where I was speculating and where I was drawing on what was known, um, that was part of the reason for having having the reference references in there. Yeah. I mean, not everybody's going to read the references, and I don't expect anybody to, but, you know, if somebody does need to, then they're useful to have. So, um yeah, and, and there is extra information in there, I suppose, for, for the people who want to put a different way of reading the material. Do you, as a, um, how do you do your referencing? Do you just open up a Word document, call it references and dump them all in there as you go? Is that how it works? Well, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this one, because Edith had written so many papers, I had to have a more organised approach, you know, because she's got over 300 papers that I had mm. to keep track of. Mm. Um, so actually used a referencing database called EndNote um, to keep track of all of those. And that does actually make it much easier because you can search the documents all at once. And so if I know, you know, I wanted to know when did she mention her childhood? So I can actually search for childhood and it'll search all of her papers for that phrase. Isn't technology so wonderful? That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's a lot of responsibility in telling someone else's story. Like you're telling Edith's story. Um, you know, do you feel that? Because you acknowledge Edith's family as integral to the process. How do you manage the process of kind of holding someone else's family history and then disseminating it for public perusal, so to speak? Tricky, and you, you inevitably, you can't please everybody with, with what you're doing when you're telling someone else's story. I, I, I was struck um, last year, my, my grandmother died and I was thinking about, you know, talking to my, my mother and my aunts and uncles and how different everybody's versions of her were. Um, mm. You know, when they came to write the eulogy, they all had totally different views of what was important to her, who she was, what we should talk about. And, and it struck me, you know, but if you're writing a biography, it's only ever going to be your version of their life. It, it can't be somebody else's version. 
Because their versions all differ and different people remember different things that are important to them. Mm. And, and I find, I guess that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book the way I did, which is very much acknowledging the gaps and the holes and the speculation in the process, is because I was very uncomfortable with the idea of writing an authoritative biography. Because I just didn't feel I could do that. Yeah, um, fair enough. So mm, you, it's more of a life story than a biography, so to speak. Like it's sharing what what we know about her. Yeah, yeah, and and it's very much it is my perspective of her life. So so it's my view of her as a writer and as a person with an interest in natural history. Mm. It, it's a family member's view of her. It's not somebody who knew her. Mm. So so outsider's view. Mm. Um, I really love the last chapter of the book where you talk about how, having written the book, um, Edith changed the way you think about our relationship with Australian nature and our place in it, but also the way that you think about your writing. Can you explain a little bit about that? Like, what's what did Edith teach you about writing? I think one of the main things Edith taught me is is just to be confident in what you're doing and and do it well, you know, and and not to be particularly concerned about what other people think or whether you should be a writer. I, I suffer from the problem of coming from a science background and yet being a writer and people saying, well, how do you get to be a writer when you're a scientist? Because everybody knows scientists can't write. <laughs> Which is not true. Not true. <laughs> Clearly not true. It's funny um, how everyone has these ideas though, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's very easy for you to think, oh, I shouldn't be doing writing, you know, because... Uh, you know, I'm not really a writer. I don't come from the black background or, or any of those sorts of things. And and Edith did the did the same thing. She didn't. She knew she was a housewife, um, with a teacher training background. She had no reason to think that she could just waltz in and and do science. And yet she did, and she did it very successfully. And and she didn't. I think it's really interesting the way she interacts with people who occasionally would attempt to criticise her. She she just put back the arguments to them very clearly, very confidently, and and didn't allow them any room to put her down. Hmm. She was she she knew her stuff, and she knew she knew her stuff. <laughs> that was all needed. I think we can all learn a little bit from that, can't we? Um, it's interesting you say that though that about you know the science and the writing because your your book. Voyages to the South Seas, which is about Australia's French explorers, won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. So, you know, obviously the science and the writing is coming together quite nicely for you, really. But when you're writing a book like that, are you thinking about the writing or are you just thinking about bringing that story, that information to life? Well, Voyages to the South Seas is a narrative nonfiction. So it's, it is nonfiction, but it's told like a story. Mm. So... In that sense, it was very much about the writing and about the pace and the character and the, you know, the, the story arcs and all of those sorts of things that you would normally associate with fiction, um, and and that made it, you know, a really exciting project to work on. And and to a similar a similar way with the Wasp and the Orchid, it's very much about the structure of the story and how how to tell the story and how to make it engaging and interesting and maintain, you know, the reader's interest as you're going along. All right, so let's switching gears slightly, you also have several non-fiction books for children, which have been short, long-listed, won awards, done all of those things. When you're talking about those kind of works, where you're talking about you know non-fiction books for kids, and your subjects are 
things like prehistoric giants, megafauna of Australia, and prehistoric marine life in Australia's inland sea. We're talking about big subjects, you know, big, massive, like people spend years and years of their lives researching this kind of stuff and writing enormous tomes about it. When you come to sort of like make that accessible for children, how do you do that? Is it about choosing which facts are going to interest kids the most or I mean, how do you how do you take such a massive subject and bring it down to such an accessible level? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you say that about it being a massive subject because those books, despite the fact that they are my slimmest volumes, <laughs> are actually my most heavily researched books. Mm. They're the ones that take the most work to research, much more so than than the other books. Mm. Uh, which it seems strange because the research is almost completely invisible. Mm. Well, it is, and that's what I find fascinating about them because I think people look at them and just go, oh, yeah, you just got to write three sentences here about a, you know, whatever, um, and, and how easy would that be? But it's I just appreciate that what you're looking at is the tiniest, tiniest tip of an enormous iceberg of work. So I just wonder how you choose that tip. Yeah. I mean, I think having – like one of the things that's really useful to me is actually going and talking in schools – to keep these books and and that gives you a really strong sense of your audience and where they're at and what their level is and what their interests are um and to be honest a lot of the kids who are interested in these things are incredibly knowledgeable (laughs) so yes no one ever knows more about dinosaurs and things than they do when they're about six do they like it's really that's peak key learning area (laughs) so you've got to be right on your toes with them um so you can't you can't oversimplify or talk down or do any of those things you've got to be really level with your audience and and be respectful of them I suppose um but I really have two audiences for those books because I'm also lucky to be able to work with some of the paleontologists who work in these fields so I have them sitting on my shoulder as well going well it's really called that and you can't really say that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah they're a lot of work those books but I think, you know, it's it's the ultimate challenge, I suppose, for a science writer to take um, paleontology papers, which are incredibly difficult papers to read, and try and convert them into something that's accessible, engaging and and interesting to to a young audience. That mm, just makes my mind boggle, I have to say. I just I find I find that whole process really, really interesting. Um, now you talked about school talks. Um, what what other kinds of things are you doing to, to promote your books? You know, does I know you've done quite a bit of radio and podcasts. I mean, does that non-fiction specialist subject matter open doors for that sort of, um, you know, outlet for promotion? I think it does, yeah. I, I'm, I've got obviously got lots of friends who are novelists and, and I know mm. that my generally tend to get quite a lot more attention than than novels do, um, especially for, you know, early writers, first-time writers and things. So I'm really lucky in that sense, uh, Non-fiction just tend, does tend to attract a lot more interest in that. I think because it's a, you know, it's a factual content-based thing that people can really connect to. Mm. Um, it's it's an easy thing for interviewers to talk about and and discuss. Do you do a lot of? Uh, sort of, you mentioned Facebook before and how you connected with a publisher that way. But do you do any? Uh, are you consciously sort of online doing? You know, talking to people, connecting, networking, that kind of stuff. No, I'm probably a bit rubbish at that, actually. <laughs> I know lots of my friends have got, you know, Twitter accounts and Pinterest and Instagram and all these different things. I, I do Facebook. 
um, and I have a web page, and that's probably about my limit. I, I do a bit of Goodreads and a few things like that as well, but not, not hugely. Um, yeah, just just it's it's not my strength, I suppose, okay. to do a sort of thing. So so I do a bit, and I quite like Facebook and and those sorts of things, but. You know, there are limits. You can't do everything. So I think if you just do a couple of them well, that's the main thing. Well, that's right, because you're actually, you're still working at Flinders University as a senior research fellow, is that correct? Yes, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not teaching there anymore, so I'm really lucky that I can devote nearly all of my time to writing now. So, oh, terrific. So hmm. Terrific. Okay. So what's next for Danielle Claude? I mean, I know you're very busy talking about this book, but I'm assuming that you've got your next one or you're at least thinking about what your next one might be. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're sort of stacking up a bit. I've got um, I've got a new children's book on Australian fossils coming out in August, so mm. I'm doing the final proofing and those sorts of things for that book. And and that one's been quite a interesting challenge because it is specifically pitched for a younger audience than my previous children's books, which are a bit more multi-age. Ah. So I really had to focus on those word counts and how long the words are. And, and how many words are in your Australian fossil book? sure exactly but it's only you know it's only a few thousand words wow. it's a really is a so and, and, but that's also quite exciting I quite like doing the picture research and and you know working on page designs and all of that side of things I, I find the I actually find the visual process of creating the text quite interesting as well so, so that's been a great challenge Fantastic. All right, and we're going to finish up today with our question that we ask all authors. Um, what are your top three tips for aspiring authors of, I guess, literary non-fiction, non-fiction work? Well, I think probably um, the thing I find most useful is to um, have a plan for what you're doing um, and have more than one plan so that, you know, you can have your grand plan of being an international bestseller but also have those, those littler goals as well on the list of submitting to particular places, applying for fellowships, whatever it is, so that you've always got something that's achievable. Mm. Um, I also find that having a regular set time to write is really important for me. So, you know, I try to, to write first thing in the morning because I find I do my best work then. So um, having having regular set writing times. And related to that, I guess, is just to write lots because it's just something that practice makes better. So just keep writing and, and you'll naturally improve. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today, Danielle. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I think um, that your book deserves to do brilliantly. I, it, I just think it's, it's a lovely, lovely book on all levels. Um, so best of luck with all of it. Thank you very much, Alison. It's been a pleasure talking to you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in magazine and newspaper writing, Stage 1, is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, how to approach editors, how to research and structure your articles, plus interviewing skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash magazine.
Well, there we go. That was a great interview with Danielle. I love how the idea evolved from her original intention and ended up with what presumably she thinks is a much better book and what, you know, the reader will experience is a better book than the original idea. Do you think? Oh, definitely. And I, like it, first of all, it was just fascinating. Like it was a little bit like we did that interview with um, with our friend Carrie Sackville a couple mm. of episodes ago where she talked about the fact that she sort of got in contact with her original publisher because of Twitter, like something she tweeted. And um, and this sort of this kind of has a similar echo in the sense that, um, you know, Danielle was having a whinge on Facebook about the fact that her original idea had not been picked up um, yeah. and the publisher saw it and got in touch with her and said, well, I would really like to talk about this with you further. And it was that collaborative effort between the two of them um, mm. that actually brought the book to life and actually turned, you know, the, the publisher said, actually, I think you should do it this way. And it's become, you know, this it's incredibly readable and accessible um, story that I think that much, you know, has probably got much wider appeal than yeah. than she had originally imagined it might have. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, it, it, particularly with nonfiction, you know, if the idea is there, um, then a publisher will work with you to, to bring it to fruition and to the best possible fruition it can be. Yeah, love it. All right, so what's coming up for you in the coming week, Al? Um, well, I'm yeah. just sitting here thinking, what is coming up for me? Well, it, it's nearly school holidays, Valerie, so, you yeah. know, there's that to be dealing with. Um, so <laughs> I'm just yeah, just trying to get myself ahead um, yes. with all the things and, of course, putting the finishing touches to our course, our new kids' course. Um, yes, so, very exciting. Yeah, just, just keeping on, keeping on. What about you, Val? What are you doing? Quite a few things. It's all a blur. I'm going to Brisbane next week and I'll be leading a workshop there on how to build your profile. I'll also be mentoring a um, someone on, on their business book. Um, well, it's more than than a business book, but it, it it's, it's kind of associated with his particular profession. I'm also mentoring somebody else who's writing um, a memoir. So I'll be meeting up with him um, in the coming weeks. So yeah, there's quite a lot of coaching and mentoring going on. It seems. There you go. Oh, it's going to be busy. Well, all right. That's you know busy. <laughs> Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. Um, you will find me on Twitter at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, you can connect with both Alison and I on Facebook, especially in the listener community for this podcast. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and we'd love to have you in the group. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. We look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.